Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek all new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary collects and analyzes the observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as a strolling astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you. Yes, you are listeners to keep it alive. If you do enjoy what you're in the podcast, please consider contributing to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the Alpo, you can for as little as $18 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on Facebook, the ALPO. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, the podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the podcast. Now, episode 117, and we're going to learn all about the upcoming mission of the James Webb Space Telescope. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Jonathan Gardner. He is the Deputy Senior Project Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, and also he serves as a Chief of the Laboratory of Observational Cosmology in the Astrophysics Science Division of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. This is a very interesting topic. I mean, it's it's it, it's a long time coming for the JWSD project. That's right. Yes, um, we have been working on Webb since the mid nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. and um, I've been personally in my current position since two thousand two. So that is a long time. Long but time. we're getting very close to launching later this year, and it's very exciting to be that close. Yeah. Ready um, for now, this past 12 months, I'm sure has been challenging working in the COVID environment. What are some of the challenges and workarounds you guys have had to do? So, uh, first of all, personally, I've been working from home, like mm-hmm. a lot of the, um, the people who do uh, desk work uh, on the mission. But the hardware is at, in Los Angeles at the Northrop Grumman facility. And uh, the hardware is in a clean room out there. And we have managed to continue to work on the hardware throughout the, the, the last year. Um, there have been some impacts. Uh, while people are in the clean room itself, they wear masks normally. Mm-hmm. So that's no, no change. Uh, but the biggest impact has been going in and out of the clean room. That's a process that requires people to put on the what they call the bunny suits, the white gowns, and put on their masks, cover up their shoes. Uh, this is all aimed at keeping the hardware uh, clean, mm-hmm. keeping it safe from dust accumulation. And um, the interesting thing is that the 
the biggest challenge in the COVID environment is just getting people in and out of the clean room. So as people are going in, normally you've got a changing room and there's multiple people in there. The, uh, right now we're, we're going one at a time and people go put on their gown and then they go into what's called an air shower that blasts them with air to, to brush off any dust they might have still on their gowns. And then they can go into the clean room. And we've had to cut that down to just one person at a time. And that has slowed things down a bit, but not too bad. We've managed to keep working throughout. Yeah, I work in the clean room environment on the project I'm on too through Goddard. And and okay. it's probably the safest place to be. <laughs> actually. Yes, absolutely. You're yeah. completely bunny suited up. You got a mask on all the time and you know, and uh it's it's HEPA filtered air. So it's that's right. Yeah. So so the people working in the clean room, they're not seeing a whole lot of difference. But uh like I said, the uh getting in and out has has kind of been become a bottleneck. Right. And also, especially right at first having people fly across the country from Goddard in Maryland to the Northrop Grumman facility in the Los Angeles area. Uh, that was slowed down a bit as well, but um, we, I mean, as, as everybody uh, we're, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, um, people are starting to get vaccinated and uh, mm -hmm. we're gearing up for uh, shipping the observatory down to South America for the launch later this year. Great. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, are you guys allowed to travel? Because I know on our project, no one from Goddard can come out here. Uh, it's very limited, okay. but um, there are there are people still managing to travel when um, when that's really necessary. Okay, great. Uh, we don't we we have our meetings over uh, virtually as well, um, like everybody else. But, right. Uh, but when people actually need to be interacting with the hardware or observing delicate procedures, then they're able to go out. Okay. Get good. where they need to go. So let's talk about your background and how you came to have your current position on this project. Sure. So I'm a scientist. I'm an astronomer. Uh, I did my PhD at the university of Hawaii. Oh, that's and, a nice location. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good place for ground-based astronomy, but I also always kind of was interested in space astronomy. Uh, from Hawaii, uh, I got my PhD in 1992, and I went to England. I went to the University of Durham in the north of England to do research there as a po what's called a postdoctoral fellow. Um, I was actually part of a NATO exchange program. And I was there for four years. And in 1996, I came to Goddard, where I currently work. I came there to work on the on research, research being done with the Hubble Space Telescope. That was the just I started just before the second servicing mission when two new cameras were installed on Hubble, uh, uh, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph and the near-infrared camera, which was called NICMAS. And with NICMAS in particular, it was a infrared camera working in the in the what's called the near-infrared, just a little bit beyond the wavelengths that we can see uh, with visible light. And the research that I did was, uh, was to do galaxy surveys. So essentially, we take the camera, we take Hubble, we point it at a part of the sky that we choose to be fairly typical, and we do the statistics of the kind of, of the galaxies that we see. So everywhere you point Hubble, it's sensitive enough, it's going to see mm -hmm. lots of galaxies. And the, uh, the more distant those galaxies are, the more time it's taken for the light to get from the galaxy to the telescope. And that means we're looking backwards in time to when the universe was younger. So this is the kind of research that I was working on, looking at how the population of galaxies change over time as the universe go went from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago to the present day. And the, the research I did was in the infrared. And so shortly after I started working at, at Goddard, one of my colleagues 
mentioned to me in the hallway that uh, NASA was starting to do a study about a new telescope that would be the successor to Hubble. And um, this successor telescope was designed in part to do infrared galaxy surveys. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a project I should get involved with. Right up your so alley. I went along with him to a meeting, um, started to learn about the project. And over the course of the next few years, I uh, started to do some, to help out with some research studies about what the um, what the telescope would look like, what kind of instruments, what kind of science program it should be designed to do. And then in 2002, I was invited to become the deputy senior project scientist uh, on the project, um, working with Dr. John Mather, who's a Nobel laureate, mm. who is the senior project scientist. So I've been there. I've been working on the project since 2002. Um, along the way, I also became the chief of the cosmology laboratory at Goddard, which means I'm kind of like a, a department chair at a university department um, working with the other scientists. So I take on. galaxies and the structure of galaxies and their formation is your, that's your, that's your area of expertise, actually. That, that is, yes. Yeah, that's the research that I've, that I've done my whole career, and uh, it's something that Webb is going to be very, very powerful at mm -hmm. doing, although Webb is a general purpose observatory like Hubble, which means that it can do just about any kind of astronomy that you uh, that you can think of. Um, just about anything in the sky, um, Webb will have something to say about it. Well, then let's talk about the mission goals. I mean, it, it, obviously, cosmology is a major part of that. What are some of the others? So, um, the one of the first things I did when I joined the project was to work with a group of scientists that we call the Science Working Group to define the mission goals for Webb. And we came up with four science themes. Um, the first science theme, which we call uh, the end of the dark ages, first the first galaxies, the first light, and what's called reionization. That is the very distant universe when the when we look backwards in time to within a few hundred million years of the, the Big Bang and look for the first galaxies, first stars and galaxies that formed in the area that we're looking. In order to do this, we need to, we need to see things that are very faint because they are just so very far away. And when we tried to to do this research with Hubble, obviously we learned a, we learned a whole lot, but uh, we didn't quite get to the point where we were seeing the very first galaxies that were forming. Um, Hubble can see back to within the first one billion years of the the history of the universe, back to less than a billion years after the Big Bang. <clears throat> but some of the galaxies that we see in observations like the Hubble ultra deep field, the longest exposure yeah. that Hubble has made, the deepest, faintest picture that humanity has ever taken. Um, some of those galaxies that we see that are very right at the edge of what Hubble can see are still already a couple of hundred million years old. And that means that in order to see the first galaxies that formed, we need to go a bit beyond. So that actually defined the, the reason why Webb needs to be a bigger telescope than Hubble. It needs to be able to see fainter things and uh, see further back. So that was a, one of the first, okay. first defining goals of Webb. Um, another one is tracing those very first pieces of small pieces of galaxies over time, watching the evolution of the population of galaxies and uh, galaxies tend to evolve by merging together and building up over time mm. into bigger and bigger structures. And so these first small pieces of galaxies will merge together and make the big galaxies like our own Milky Way that we see together. And over the course of that, those billions of years of evolution, the galaxies will um, go through multiple populations of stars and produce the heavy elements that eventually end up in 
um, stars like our own sun, which is a second generation star, mm-hmm. and uh, form the solar system and the planets in orbit around uh, around the stars. So that brings to the third theme, which is the uh, formation of stars and their planetary systems. Um, this is research that's mostly done within uh, regions that are forming stars in our own galaxy, where we can see into the individual stars and the individual planetary systems being formed out of dust disks and, and clouds of gas and dust. And then the fourth theme is um, something that's become much more interesting and much more uh, important to astronomy over the course of the last 20 years, and that is exoplanets okay. uh, as well as planets in our own solar system. So it turns out that even though the original conception of, of the successor to Hubble was going to be something that would do galaxies and cosmology, uh, it turns out that what we're building is going to be very interesting, very powerful at studying planets around other stars and also um, studying the outer solar system of our own, of our own solar system, the outer, outer planets. Um, one of the things that, that has been, uh, has taught us an awful lot about extrasolar planets or exoplanets using Hubble is when the planet transits across the face of its host star. So essentially this is just a chance geometrical alignment mm-hmm. where the planet lines up between the star and the telescope. And But when that happens, light from the star goes through the atmosphere of the planet and the atmosphere will absorb some of the, the light and depending on its, its composition, it will appear differently to us if it's got a lot of oxygen or mm. a lot of nitrogen or or um, hydrogen or hydrogen atmosphere. And this is the the main way that we can learn about the uh, what's going on with the planets themselves. What is in their atmosphere? Do they have? Does it have an atmosphere to start with? Um, maybe does it even have clouds in the atmosphere? Are there molecular? Uh, components of of the atmosphere. And um, one of the things that we astronomers have been trying to do since the discovery of the first extrasolar planets um, over the the course of the last 25 years ago or so is to look for planets that might have the conditions that we think of as being important for life. Um, So one of the things that we would love to see is the evidence in the atmosphere of an exoplanet mm. that the planet itself has liquid water on its surface. That is the characteristic of life on Earth is, is that it's a water-based life. And uh, it's, it's also important to the history of the Earth that not only is the art, do we have oceans, but we also have land, you know, is there, is there beachfront property, as it, <laughs> as it said, um, on these extrasolar planets. And that's something that, that Webb will be able to see the evidence in the atmospheres of, of uh, exoplanets that are rocky planets like the earth. Um, does it have liquid water on the surface or is the, or are there oceans completely frozen or are they, um, is it too hot for that and it too hot for liquid water? Um, essentially, if you look at our own solar system, Venus is too hot for life. Mars is too cold. Um, all of the water on Mars is is frozen, whereas the Earth is the Goldilocks planet right. that is just right, um, just the right temperature. Well, those are some lofty goals and, yeah. and, and themes. And it's interesting because the the organization that this podcast is sponsored by, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, we're basically amateur astronomers who are doing some science. And we That's great. last year we just started our, our exoplanet section. So with the with the uh, CCD imagers that are available now to the amateur, we're able to do light curves and and, and analyze these possible exoplanets as well. Yeah, absolutely. It is um it is a an area of astronomy that has just blossomed mm-hmm. in the last uh, 20, 
25 years. Um, and uh, when we first started thinking about web, we didn't think all that much mm -hmm. about exoplanets because it was just a brand new field. Um, by the time we we sat down and wrote, wrote down the goals, the science goals for the mission, we realized that exoplanets were going to be important and uh, included a, a chapter on um, planets and the conditions for life. Um, but we kind of found like there wasn't a whole lot that we knew what to say mm -hmm. um, when we wrote those goals down. Uh, and yet here we are about ready to launch the observatory and um, something like 20, 25% of the science program for the first year is going to be looking at, um, at exoplanets and uh, uh, disks and, and planetary systems. Um, so that, is a, that has become a very important part of our science program. That, that is very, very exciting. And, and you mentioned one of the first goals was to look further back in time. Mm -hmm. how, how much further back will the, will the Webb Space Telescope allow us to look? Right. So the important thing is um, how close to the beginning can we get? Uh, so as I mentioned before, Hubble is able to see to, to detect galaxies that are emitting their life light within the first 1 billion years mm -hmm. of the Big Bang, after the Big Bang. that The Big Bang was 13.8 uh, billion years ago. So we're looking back, you know, 12 to 13 billion years back to within the first 1 billion. With Webb, we hope to take that back to um, maybe 400 million years, maybe as cool. far as 250 million years after the Big Bang. But what's kind of more important is that it depends more on what there is to see mm. than the capabilities of Webb okay. itself. Uh, so when we find a population of galaxies that appear to us to be very young, just forming their first stars, um, at these very great distances. And when we don't see anything that's any further away, any further back, that's when we can point to those uh, galaxies that we are detecting and say, well, that, that must be the first thing that, that formed. There, there's actually two aspects to um, going further back. One is just that when things are further away, um, they're... Uh, regardless of their intrinsic brightness, the apparent brightness um, gets fainter and fainter as you look at things further and further away. Um, so we needed a bigger telescope than Hubble in order to go further. But there's another aspect to this, and that's brought in by the expansion of the universe. When the light is first emitted, um, the light from a young galaxy, from young stars, comes out in the ultraviolet and visible light regions, also in the infrared. But as those light waves travel through the expanding universe, they get stretched out. And so short wavelengths, blue light or ultraviolet light that starts out that way, over time as it travels to us over the billions of years, gets stretched out and moved into the infrared. So Hubble has um, the ability to see a, a ways into the infrared um, about um, wavelengths that are about twice as long as the wavelengths that we can see with, with visible light, um, the reddest that, that people can see. But uh, that turns out to be uh, not enough to see to these very early times. We have to go further out into the infrared and that was a fundamental design characteristic of the Webb telescope was to be infrared sensitive. Now, in order to do that, we have to make the telescope cold because um, things that have a temperature will emit infrared light. And um, Hubble, which is at room temperature, uh, emits light that will swamp the kinds of infra the the signals 
from these very early galaxies that we want to see with Webb. So Webb is designed to sit behind a tennis court sized five layer sun shield that uh, allows the telescope to cool down to a temperature of 225 degrees below zero mm. Celsius. Um, and, and that way light, the, the essentially the heat radiation from the telescope is not swamping the signal of the very, very distant galaxies that we want to see. So as an infrared optimized telescope, um, Webb can see further than Hubble can see uh, in addition to being able to see fainter things. Yeah, when I was doing research on, on the Webb telescope, I was amazed at the size of the sun shield. I, and I don't think any, have we had another probe that actually had a sun shield similar to this? I mean, not even the uh, uh, Parker Solar Probe has something like this, does it? No, so this kind of uh, very large flimsy, it's kind of a plastic material called Kapton. Mm -hmm. It's got five different layers. Uh, each layer, as I said, is the size of a tennis court, 22 meters on the longest uh, distance. Um, and it's it's deployed. We can talk about um, how we uh, how we can launch some something this big in size in inside of a normal sized rocket. But uh, it's a very large, um, very flimsy sun shield. Other missions have had sun shields, but nothing this big. No, so, for example, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which, which was uh, an infrared telescope, kind of the sister of, of Hubble, the infrared um, sister mission of, of Hubble. Spitzer was a, a 0 0.8 meter diameter primary mirror, mirror. So a much, much smaller mission. It had a sun shield that, that would allow it to, uh, to get to these very low temperatures. Um, but Spitzer also carried liquid helium to cool it even further. Um, that which allowed it to get uh, get very cold um, down to within, uh, I think, seven degrees of absolute zero. But um, but with Webb, this this is the first time that we have a very large deployed sun shield like this, and um, Webb is also passively cooled, which means that we don't have a big tank of liquid helium to keep it cold we have uh we just allow the the telescope to radiate its heat into deep space and for the mirror and at least three of the four instruments they're all passively cooled uh the fourth instrument the the camera that works at the longest wavelengths we have a closed cycle refrigerator that uses liquid helium to keep it uh, to get it even colder. Okay. Well, most of our listeners I know are familiar with the Hubble. What What would you yeah. say are some of the basic differences between the Hubble and the Web? Well, so the biggest, the two biggest differences, as I mentioned, are that Web is bigger. Mm -hmm. um, it's a six and a half meter diameter primary mirror compared to Hubble, which is two point four meters. Um, and that Webb is a cold telescope, infrared optimized telescope. So Webb's operating temperature, the primary mirror is um, uh, about 50 Kelvin. So 50 degrees above absolute zero, that's about 225 below zero mm -hmm. Celsius. Um, but there's also lots of other differences. Um, in order to get Webb to be that cold and to have a essentially a one-sided sun shield protecting it from the sun. We are sending Webb out into a deep space orbit, uh, which is an orbit around the second Lagrange point. This is a special place in the Earth-Sun system in which the sun, the Earth, and the second Lagrange point are always lined up in a line. So as the Earth goes around the sun once per year, the second Lagrange point goes around the Earth once per year and goes around the Sun once per year, and it always stays lined up. So we're going to put Webb out in orbit around that point. And so Webb's 
Yeah, essentially in a solar orbit, um, goes around the sun once per year, keeping track with the with the Earth. In comparison, Hubble is in low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. So uh, Hubble goes around the Earth every 90 minutes. Um, and what what that means is that Hubble is spends half of its 90 minutes on the daytime side of the Earth and half of it on the nighttime side of the Earth. So while it's in the sunlight side, it it warms up, and while it's on the on the nighttime side, the Earth is in the protects Hubble from sunlight, and um, it will uh, it will cool off. But because of that going in and out of the sunlight, Hubble is actually has heaters on it that keep it at a pretty constant temperature. Um, but that temperature has to be a, a warm temperature, um, the you know essentially room temperature. Uh, so in order to get, in order to have a mission that that cools like like Webb does, it has to be out in deep space. So it's a, a million miles away, 1.5 kilometers away at the second Lagrange point. Um, that's another big difference um, right. that affects a lot of the mission. And then, uh, then another uh, thing that's very new for Webb is all of the deployments. So we're going to launch Webb in an Ariane 5 rocket. This is a about a five meter diameter rocket. And the primary mirror is six and a half meters. So we had to fold the mirror to get it, it into the rocket ferry. It's actually 18 segments, I believe. It's So it's got 18 segments, um, 18 individual pieces of beryllium coated with gold uh, that make up the primary mirror. The segments are each hex hexagons in a tile that is approximately circular uh, with six and a half meter diameter. And the two side wings, so three of these 18 segments on either side of the mirror are folded back for launch. And so after launch, when we've gotten rid of the rocket and the fairing, um, and it's it's the observatory is on its way to the L2 point, we will do these deployments. And the first thing is to fold out this big five layer sun shield, uh, the, the um, the sun shield is is kind of folded up around the telescope for launch. We do the two, uh, the front and back, and then pull out the sides on these booms and separate the five layers. Uh, the secondary mirror is also a deployment. It's kind of folded up on top of the primary mirror. So then we fold out the secondary mirror and bring the two side wings of the primary mirror um, into the, the mirror plane. But we still have 18 segments at that point. Mm -hmm. And we have a long and very complicated process for aligning those 18 mirror segments at, to a common optical surface. Um, it's not enough to just bring each individual segment into a focus mm -hmm. um, because that would that would not phase up the, the light. We have to go through a, a process of very, very precisely measuring um, using, uh, using an, an interferometric type of process uh, to, to bring those 18 mirror segments into a common optical surface and um, make sure that we have the best we uh the best what's called a point spread function um if if some of your listeners are um <laughs> are have their own telescopes they'll understand what that means um but bring bring it it into um to have a good a good optical response over all four of the instruments and that's actually a process that will take several months after launch so yeah. when when we launch towards the end of this year, unfortunately, it's going to be um, well into 2022 before we get um, start to get good pictures and and um, start to do the science. Uh, we have a plan for six months after launch. There's one month to get out to the okay. the L2 point and for the telescope 
and the instruments to cool down to the point where we can turn them on and start using them. Uh, three months to phase up the mirrors and then an additional two months to try out all of the um, the instruments, the four instruments and all of their individual modes and filters and, and spect spectroscopy and all of that. Um, so launch is going to be very exciting. <laughs> and the first month, the first two to three weeks when we're doing these deployments will be very nerve wracking. Uh, but even after that, um, it's going to be launch plus six months before we start to get the first science results out of the mission. Yeah, ha having an engineering background, just think thinking about the the mechanics of controlling those eighteen segments, and uh, I have a hard time collimating one mirror in my telescope. I can't imagine what it would take to do eighteen. Yeah, that's why it it takes um, three months to do this. We have. Uh, you know, essentially, when we first turn on the telescope, we'll um, to first turn on the camera, we'll point it at a bright star mm -hmm. and we'll see 18 out of focus mm -hmm. um, images of that star. Uh, we can we can focus and align each of the um, each of those images and stack them up. And then we have to do this um, more advanced process using what's called a dispersed Hartman sensor um, to to phase them up. Uh, each of the mirror segments is controllable with uh, six degrees of freedom. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, you know, the normal X, Y, Z of, of moving around. Uh, but we can also tip the mirror. We can tilt the mirror and um, we can uh, um, rotate the, the mirror. Those are the six degrees of freedom. And then we also have an additional actuator right in the middle of each of the mirror segments that we can we can adjust the radius of curvature by poking the back and um, uh, and change that as well. The okay. secondary mirror is also on a hexapod, so it's also controllable in six degrees of freedom. Um, altogether, it's it's well over a hundred degrees of freedom that we all have to uh, to line it all up to work. That's interesting. So you can poke the back. So what is the thickness of the segment? So it's about, um, I'm trying to remember because I've seen some, it's it's about maybe four centimeters. Okay. Um, we can't adjust it very much, but these right. mirror segments individually are polished to a surface uh, roughness of 20 nanometers. <laughs> Um, among the best mirrors ever made, as yes. you might expect. Um, what that means is that if one of these mirror segments were the size of the United States, the biggest mountain would be about two feet high. My God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I was lucky enough to be down in uh, Redondo Beach for some of the, uh, I, got a, I got a tour of the facility where the oh, telescope was being yeah. built. And so I was above the clean room being able to look down and see. It was, it's, I was amazed at the size of this thing. It is huge. And, um, you know, I don't know if we've, uh, I don't, I, I'm sure we've never put anything this big in deep space. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, the international space station is bigger, but, um, there's not <laughs> very many things that humans have put in space that are bigger than, than web. And, um, certainly it is, uh, one of the biggest in in a number of different ways of measuring it it's one of the biggest science projects in the history of of the united states and the history of the world um in terms of like the number of people working on it the amount of um of effort that went into it um in terms of mass it's only about half the mass of hubble uh the whole observatory because um one of the things that we get for having the 18 mirror segments is that it is much lighter. It is much less mass than a solid piece of, uh, of glass would be, that would be six and a half meters in diameter. True. And the, the, just the technology and the, the challenges of building something that's complex. I mean, I'm sure there's international collaboration with this as well. <laughs> Yeah, there is. And um, in fact, uh, Webb is a joint project of NASA and the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. So tripartite, tripartite um, project. 
that that was negotiated very early on in the project in the late 1990s. Um, the international collaboration was put together. Um, nominally, the European Space Agency is a 15% partner and the Canadian Space Agency is a 5% partner. So, you know, the NASA is the lead, uh, but the Europeans are contributing um, essentially one and a half of the four instruments. So the European Space Agency is building the built the uh, near-infrared spectrograph and worked with the United States on the mid-infrared instrument. And in mm -hmm. fact, they built a lot of the hardware, the optics and um, uh, for that, for the mid-infrared camera. Um, the United States contributed the uh, the detectors and the cooling system for that camera. And then the Canadian Space Agency is contributing um, one of the four instruments, which is uh, a specialized instrument that does, um, <clears throat> that's kind of designed to do uh, particular things very well. One of which is, is to study transiting planets around very bright nearby stars. So that's one of the most exciting mm -hmm. parts of the, of the mission. And then another uh, contribution by the European Space Agency is the rocket. So it will be launched on an Ariane 5 rocket. Um, that's a very dependable rocket. Yeah, it's, um, we've had um, well over 100 uh, Ariane 5 launches in the past and, and um, they've, They've all done very well. So Webb will be heading down to South America because the Ariane 5 is launched from uh, a spaceport in Kourou, French Guiana, which is just north of Brazil mm. on the South, in South American Atlantic coast. Okay. So you mentioned that it's still in Southern California being assembled. What is its current build status? So it is um, fully assembled. Uh, we have gone through um, the final and what's called environmental testing, which is essentially a simulation of mm -hmm. launch in terms of the vibration and the the acoustic, the noise of the rocket. So the 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 observatory is fully assembled. Um, we put it on a shaker table mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, just literally shook it up and down. That is and, one of the and, scariest um, tests I ever witnessed on any spacecraft. It, it absolutely is to see that, you know, to see the, this very high tech, very uh, delicate, expensive scientific instrument being shaken up and down. Um, but that that's what that's what we have to do. We have to mm -hmm. simulate uh, the rocket ride um, and then do a final uh, checkout of everything after that that uh, vibration test. And then also we blasted it with, um, with noise. Mm -hmm. That is again, what the, the level of noise that you would get um, inside the Ariane 5 rocket. So we've gone through that. We did a, a final deployment test of the sun shield and we've just finished folding the sun shield back up. So the, the five layer membranes are all folded up um, the next step is to uh, do all of the um, the attachments to make sure that that those those sunshield membranes uh, don't slide around, and then we'll do a, a final deployment test of the wings of the of the primary mirror, um, pack it up into the shipping container, and by um, late summer, and uh, send it down to Kourou where there's um, sort of two to three months of processing mm. down there to get it into the rocket fairing and ready for the launch. Good. Do you have a target launch date? I know that's always getting shifted to the, to the left. Um, so it's a, it's a October is the goal for okay. the launch. Um, that's what we're aiming at um, launch in October. We don't have a day yet, um, okay. but uh, should be sometime in, Sometime in October. Are you going to be there? Launch date. That's uh, that's an open question. Um, there, there's not a lot of uh, room for people that um, to be there. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't. Uh, unlike a launch out of the Kennedy Space Center, Jonathan, in Florida, it's your baby. 
I know. So you got to be there. <laughs> we've got, we've got, um, we've got a lot of the action going on uh, back here at the operations center, mm-hmm. which is in Baltimore on the campus of Johns Hopkins. Um, and COVID's also, uh, right. you know, impacted what we can, what we can do. So we haven't worked out um, who is actually going to be at the launch site and who's going to be at the operations center. Um, you know, the actions happening actually at the operations oh. center where we Yeah, but sure there's nothing like seeing your baby well. take off. <laughs> There is. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I hope you get to do that. That's yeah. that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share about the the web telescope? Um. Let's see. Uh, so one of the things that um is just hot off the press, just um, brand new news, is that we have selected the first year of science observations. Oh. So. We, when we planned this telescope back in the um, started to thinking of thinking about what it would what it would be built to be able to do <laughs> back 20 years ago, we always knew that um, we would want to adjust what it actually does based mm-hmm. on um, you know following up on the most recent results from Hubble from ground-based telescopes, um, uh, the the most exciting exoplanet targets and um, the uh, studying galaxies that have been well studied with other telescopes. So the way we we choose what the telescope will actually look at is through peer-reviewed proposals. So the worldwide astronomical community, um, astronomers from from everywhere, uh, submitted proposals in late November, and those proposals were read by a panel of almost 200 scientists were involved in the peer review and the very best observations were chosen for the first year. And that uh, that suite of observations was just announced um, mm. last week. Um, I'm excited to uh, personally be involved in three of the um, 220 something oh proposals that, that were selected. Um, and in all, there's there's uh, 2,200 scientists involved. Um, either you know some some of them wrote the were the were the principal investigator, the lead author, but um, lots of large teams involved in some of these projects because it's just going to be such a very rich data set uh, that there's there's going to be lots of interpretation that needs to be done from the observations. So that was very exciting, um, the selection of the first year of observations. And there are, um, it, it does cover just about every aspect of, of astronomy uh, from our own solar system, mm. um, the outer solar system, Webb can't point towards, towards the sun. So uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, um, and a lot of work actually in the in the very outer solar system, the Kuiper Belt, um, oh, okay. which includes Pluto, but has lots of of other small um, small uh, dwarf planets that um, we think kind of hold the the pristine original composition of uh, the dust cloud that that formed the planets and and our sun. Um, four and a half billion years ago. So everything from from our solar system out to the very uh, edges of the universe, the the looking backwards to just to um, to see what we can see in in the very uh, in within the first billion years after the Big Bang, and um, lots of work within our own galaxy and nearby galaxies. Um, it's just going to be a, a a whole lot to learn. Um, what I would say, um, although I'm I'm very excited to be involved with um, some of the projects on galaxy evolution myself, um, what I think is going to be the most interesting thing that Webb will do um, is probably something that we don't really know yet mm-hmm. what it's going to be. Um, some kind of, um, we're looking at something and it doesn't match what we thought it would look like. Uh, we'll be making new discoveries um, that are unexpected. And I think that's kind of the most exciting thing 
Um, that's certainly been true of Hubble. If you take um, what people think of as like the top 10 results or top 20 results of from Hubble, um, less than half of them are things true. that that people predicted before the the launch before it was launched, and the other half are things that just kind of came out of nowhere and and surprised the astronomers. That's why we do what we do. That's why you do observations. You know, if if you could predict everything, then you might as well just be theorists and you don't need <laughs> observations. That's right. So that's right. Now, when the telescope does become operational, will will professional astronomers be able to like book telescope time on it? So that's this process that I was talking about. Okay. Um, they write proposals. They okay. ask for the amount of time that they need. And the proposals range from, um, you know, very small, uh, just a couple of hours, um, all the way up to, uh, I, I don't know what the biggest one is, maybe 200 hours um, in the first year. Uh, and um, they justify um, justify that by by making the predictions of what they'll see and okay. also indicating where where there's things to learn. Um, these proposals are read by the peer review and the best um, the best ones are chosen. And that's going to be an annual process. Oh great. So we've so we've worked out the first year, but about um, four or five months after the start of science operations. So we've got um, six months to commission the telescope, get it going. We start doing the science observations. About four or five months after that, we'll have the call for the second year of observations. Okay. And um, that will happen every year. And that allows us to do follow-up. So with a discovery um, in the mm -hmm. first few months of, of the mission, um, Astronomers can then write a proposal to do follow up. You know, maybe they see something in a picture in an image, um, and say, "Well, let's get let's break the light up with the spectrograph and and get more information about these these objects." Or or maybe it could be that um, somebody finds something with a ground based telescope or with Hubble, mm -hmm. um, at, and uh, that also justifies following up with Webb to get more information about it. Um, that's an ongoing process every year um, through the lifetime of the observatory. Okay. Well, I was excited about this before, and now I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Wow. Uh, what is the estimated lifetime? So the lifetime, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, there is one thing on board that would eventually run out, and that is fuel. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the mission, the spacecraft, uses fuel, not a whole lot, but uses some fuel to maintain its position in orbit. Um, the second Lagrange point is not a stable orbit. It's a, it's a um, semi-stable or metastable. It's not, yeah. Um, essentially, things will drift away. <laughs> so, right. um, so it's, and, and Webb is actually in kind of orbit around the point anyway. So to maintain its position in space and not drift away from the earth, um, we need to use fuel, probably firing the thrusters about every couple of weeks or so. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, it's also necessary to manage the angular momentum of the observatory. Um, the sun shield acts like a solar sail. Uh, and when we point, uh, tilt that, you know, relative to the sun, it's going to build up angular momentum. Um, and that's another thing that we need to use the rockets to, to dump that angular momentum. So, um, so the, that, that is the one thing that could potentially limit the lifetime. Yeah. Now, so the obvious question is how much fuel do we have? And we've got a requirement for 10 years of okay. fuel. Um, there is margin on that, which means we've got some extra just in mm -hmm. case. And another interesting thing is um, if we get a good launch, if the, the rocket works well compared to um, you know, what we expect, um, then that, then, then we don't need to use as much of that fuel as if we, 
uh, you know, as if something is is a little bit off with the rocket. Um, and that translates into additional years of lifetime. Um, so that's one of the things that astronomers will be really interested in on launch day is, is how well did, did the rocket work at inserting it into the, mm -hmm. the, um, the orbit that we want? And how much do we have, how much fuel do we have to use in um, a couple of planned corrections on that we have on its way to the L2 point? Um, so that translates into lifetime, um, additional lifetime. So it could well be that uh, the fuel lasts much longer than 10 years. Um, and at that point, it then becomes just how long uh, the mission, how long the, it will keep working. And funding. <laughs> well, so um, NASA is not going to turn this thing off. Just <laughs> like we're, NASA is not going to turn Hubble off. Right. As long as it's working, um, as long as it's it's producing good science, uh, it's a it's a high priority for the agency, and um, the funding will will continue. Um, and uh, so I don't think, you know, I mean that's always always a reality with mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of projects. Um, but uh, Hubble has been incredibly productive. It's mm -hmm. thirty years and and counting. Um, and it's still doing really good science. Right. Um, Hubble also has a peer-reviewed proposal process. Right. And also, um, and astronomers are still very eager to use Hubble and, and submit many more proposals than it's possible to, uh, than there is time to actually carry out. So we're not running out of things to do with Hubble and we won't ever run out of things to do with Webb. Um, and I think as long as it's scientifically productive, uh, the funding will be there to keep it, keep the operations going. That sounds great. Now, one, one more thing. I was reading your bio and I see that you're a guitar player. Yeah, that's a, that's a hobby. Um, my wife and I play uh, folk music, um, oh. what's called uh, fiddle tunes. Um, and the name of our band is Transatlantic Crossing. I actually, you know, as I mentioned, I was, in uh, England for four years, and that's where we met and got married. Um, and we met in a folk group. It was actually a dance group, but it had an associated band. And so we do traditional uh, folk tunes of the um, the British Isles, the um, England, uh, Ireland, and Scotland. And then we also play what that folk music became when it came over, when people brought it over to the United States. So sort of like um, New England contra dance music and uh, Appalachian music. That's great. It's fun. So, it's, it's good to have a hobby oh, as, well yeah. as, a, as well as a job. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. So do you do concerts and things like that as well? Or? Um, we, we, we've played for dances um, with folk dance groups. Okay. Um, and uh, like, for example, um, you know, under COVID, there's not a whole lot going on. Right. But um, my wife and I just told the sent an email to the neighborhood email list and said, we're going to be out on our oh. porch on St. Patrick's day playing Irish tunes. And oh, how fun. Um, a bunch of the neighbors came around and, and spread out uh, all socially distanced. Uh, so that was fun. Yeah. Oh, that is great. That's good. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, this has been really informative, really entertaining. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's been fun to talk to you. And um, I hope all of your listeners are going to be watching um, when Web is launched. And then uh, six months later, when the, the pictures and the science results start pouring in. Yeah, thank you very much. And good luck on launch and the mission. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Dr. Jonathan Gardner for coming on the podcast today and talking to us about the James Webb Space Telescope. What an interesting topic, interesting project, and a great interview. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, for coming on. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. 
You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and that annoying box that sits in your house, the Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donate to, donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time. My hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>